Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you. And there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a traditional Bible, but you'd like to have one, then one of my friends here will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Of course, you can take your smart device and you can open up the U version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures. Those have already been uploaded. And we'll also put the scriptures right behind you on the screen here. And uh, if you're watching us live online, one of our other sites at one of our many services at the Brown County Correctional Facility, love you guys and so glad that you are a part of our family. And can I just say... For a noon game, kudos to y'all. Give yourselves a hand. You must be Bears fans because you know, you, you already know, so I'm just kidding. Uh, so for the past few weeks, obviously we've been in this series where we're talking all about identity. Last week I've, I asked the question, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? We were born in Adam and so because of that we inherit his sinful nature and the separation from God that that sin creates. And so because of that, we have to be reborn in Christ. I talked about last week, in Christ is a central theme throughout the New Testament. It's a term that's mentioned 216 times. And so we don't simply live for Christ, we live in Christ. And so today I wanna to continue this conversation by posing another question. Uh, this one is a little bit more difficult. It's actually... Um, a little more intense, maybe a little more invasive, depending upon what your religious or your spiritual background is. And so let's continue trying to examine this thought of who do you think you are? Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for my friends who are in this room. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit that was here before we got here, God would well up within us, that we would be purified, that you would pour your spirit into this place, God, that it would bubble up from inside of us, God, that when we leave here, we would be purified of who we are, that we would leave here less like us and more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I grew up a little bit of a spiritual mutt. Um, I, I went to a myriad of different churches slash religious houses of worship, some of them for a period of time, uh, others just once. A missionary Baptist Congregational Christian Alliance, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Salvation Army, those aren't just bell ringers, they also have churches, the Church of God in Christ, Assembly of God, uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, just plain Pentecostal, lots of different experiences. And it was interesting, uh, but it, it created a vacuum almost, almost a void. Because the one thing that I lack spiritually is tradition. And, and that can be a negative as well as a positive. A, ne a negative in the fact that I lacked 
uh, the rich spiritual heritage that some of you enjoyed, but a positive in the fact that I lacked the expectation to accept or believe anything at face value. I'm a skeptic, and so it played well into that. And so I, I was able, because of my lack of spiritual lineage, if you would, to be able to live out the words of Philippians 2.12, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, watch this, your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so when I came to Jesus, I realized instantaneously that I was a sinner, but I also realized that I didn't want to, nor did I have to stay that way. I didn't have any baggage. I, I was able to take on a new identity. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And I, I had religious friends. I knew religious people, people who I could look to as an example. I had lots and lots of Muslim friends. And they, they obviously had their own traditions. Like it was really important for them that they learn their religious roots. And so they would go to traditional school. And then after traditional school, a number of days a week, they would go to what they would call Arabic school. And they would learn not only their native language, but they would also learn their, their native religion. I, I knew some Catholics, not as many Catholics as Muslims where I came from, but I knew some, and they had lots of traditions. They had uh, sacraments and symbols, catechism and the rosary. They had saints, which incidentally, there are more than 10,000 named saints in the Catholic faith, which made me wonder how they remembered all of them. Nevertheless, all of that brings me to a question today. What do you think of when I say the word saint? Uh, do, you, do you automatically think of uh, patron saints like St. Paul, the apostle, patron saint of hospitals and public relations? Do you think of St. Luke, the evangelist, patron saint of doctors, artists, and notaries? Maybe you think of St. Peter, the apostle. He's the patron saint of popes, fishermen, sailors, harvesters, butchers, bakers, glassmakers, carpenters, shoemakers, clockmakers, blacksmiths, potters, and bridge builders. I think, oh, that dude is busy. Maybe when I say saint, you think of St. Francis Xavier, the patron saint of Green Bay. Maybe when I say saint, you don't think of a patron saint at all. You, you think of, of things. You think of stained glass or statues, paintings of biblical figures with halos over their heads and harps in their hands. Maybe you think of great people performing great acts. Mother Teresa selflessly feeding the poor. St. Augustine writing the words to the city of God. St. Patrick baptizing 10,000 of his Irish converts and then chasing snakes. St. John the Baptist baptizing Jesus our Lord. What do you think of when I say the word saint? When I say saint, I wonder, do you think of you? That's really what we're going to talk about today. And for some of you, I think a wall instantaneously went up. But when you ask the question, who do you think you are? Paul, in this book to his friends in the city of Ephesus, he says, clearly, you should answer, I am a saint. Then it almost makes you cringe. It almost seems like a bit of sacrilege. And yet, Yet the Apostle Paul, the author of half of the New Testament, St. Paul the Apostle, <laughs> when writing this letter to his friends at the Church of Ephesus, what we would now call the book of Ephesians, he starts with these words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by will of God to the saints 
who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I read that and I go, hmm, the saints who are in Ephesus. Like, were these people perfect? Were there no bad people in the church of Ephesus? Were they, were they not like us? Were there no gossipers? Were there no backbiters? Were there no adulterers or porn addicts or hate mongers? Were there no people who were arrogant? Did no one have a mean, spiteful spirit? Like, were they all kind, gentle, loving people who only listened to worship music and played the harp while speaking words of encouragement to everyone? <laughs> I go, are you kidding me? This was a church filled with people, people who were, who were new, people like a lot of you who were new believers, but they came from Jewish or pagan backgrounds and were still steeped in their own traditions. And yet Paul, Saint Paul calls them saints. And when you read that, it should bring up a couple of questions. It does for me. Here's Here's one. How does God see the believer? And secondarily, how should the believer see himself? How does God see the believer? And, and how should the believer see himself? It also brings up for me what I would call the big thought for today, the big ask. And here it is. Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Listen, how you answer that question goes a long way to determining how you're going to live your life. And some of you, because of your background, because of your baggage, you automatically say a saint. How could I ever be a saint? Well, the answer to that depends on which view you take. There are a couple. I'm going to talk about two. First, I, I want to talk about how to be a saint, the Catholic edition. And I don't mean any disrespect to the Catholic Church, I will share no opinion. I will share none of my own individual thoughts. We all have those. We're all entitled to those. I, I have zero animosity. I, I am friends with lots and lots of people who are beautiful, Jesus-loving, heaven-bound Catholic people. I'm just here. I don't make the news. I just read it. So in the Catholic Church, there is a process to sainthood. And, and it, it has been, it's been fluid through the years. It isn't fluid now, but... But in the beginning, it was fluid. It's changed some. It's, it's shifted. It's adjusted some throughout the years. Originally, people who loved Jesus and were martyred, that means killed for his name, they were immediately upon death declared as saints. But unfortunately, like every other religious kind of practice, over the next few centuries, the process became more political, it became more complicated, it became more commercial, and so there was this whole thing where people were like buying sainthood. And, uh, and, th and there was two ways that that could be done. You, you could do it up front, like it was your 401k, or, or someone could do it for you on the back end after you were gone. Now, just like now, if you invested on the front end, it was a lot cheaper than if you tried to buy it after the fact. If I, if I tried to buy stock in Amazon right now, oh my gosh. Incidentally, what is up with Elon Musk? First of all, he's like a mad scientist. He's somewhere right now going, <laughs> he's, listen, Elon Musk, I don't know if you read financial uh, documents, but. Yesterday it was declared. Elon Musk, if you don't know who, who Elon Musk is, he's the guy from Tesla. He is worth more, watch this, than Bill Gates 
and Warren Buffett combined. <laughs> I said, that dude's got a lot of money. I wonder if he carries cash or if he just does Bitcoin. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure. How does he, how does he tip people? Anyway, he, when he became the richest guy in the world, he, he was number two. And, and when he became the richest guy in the world, the guy before him was Jeff Bezos. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jeff Bezos, but he's a little company called Amazon. I love rich people. When Elon Musk became the richest guy in the world, he, he had manufactured a, a giant solid silver number two. And he had it shipped to Jeff Bezos' house. That's awesome. That's just, I don't care who you are, that's awesome. Uh, so uh, if you bought stock in Amazon right now, it'd be ludicrous. Like, it'd be insane. You, know, you, you, you just, you, it's hard to get in now because it's so expensive. But in 1997, if you would have bought $100 worth of Amazon stock, that $100 worth of stock would be worth $2 million today. God, I'd never even heard of Amazon in 1997. We're still buying my books at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> so back in the day, you could get in on the front end and like buy, buy your sainthood yourself or uh, when you died, somebody could buy you in. And depending upon what the person in your family who died did, there's more money. But there was like this huge deluge of people becoming saints and people that would be like, well, I don't want Uncle Buddy to go to hell. And so they would like pay and Uncle Buddy would become like the patron saint of drinking bushlight on your porch after you didn't catch any perch. And then all the guys who didn't catch perch on Sunday morning at 5 a.m. would sit on their porch and they would drink their own bushlight and they would pray to your Uncle Buddy who is now the patron saint. And so there's like all of these saints who's like they never should have become saints and so for a few hundred years there was like this onslaught of unsaintly people becoming saints and so uh, the bishops they stepped in and and around the year 1200 pope alexander iii he declared that only the pope had the power to determine who could be identified as saints aren't you guys glad that i went to seminary and you didn't have to that i could sit through five years of lectures from guys in tweed jackets to just let you figure out like these really kind of complicated things and you go i didn't even know that there was an uncle buddy the patron saint of bushlight i thought it was pbr and so then like about the 17th century like 500 years later they came up with what's called the vatican standard for sainthood and it was really complicated and it was really confusing. And so, so this Jesuit priest and this highly respected academic named Father James Martin, he, he summarized the complicated process into 10 steps. And so I, I thought I'd give you the 10 steps. This is how to become a saint, the Catholic edition. Number one is be a Catholic. So for canonization in the Catholic church, this is non-negotiable. It is a must, okay? Number one, be a Catholic. Number two, die. Uh, you have to be dead for the process of canonization to even begin. You actually usually have to be dead for five years or more, but there are extenuating circumstances where the Pope can waive the waiting period like he did with Mother Teresa or John Paul the second. Here's the third is like a local devotion must grow up around your memory. And it helps 
if uh, during your lifetime you were well-known or you did lots of good works, which explains the uh, sped-up process for Mother Teresa. Here's the fourth. Your life is then investigated. And area church leadership, they come around and they start interviewing people. They start asking questions of the people who knew you so that they can validate what's called your holy impact. And at that point, you are now officially classified as a servant of God. Step five is your local bishop then takes your case, puts it all together, and he sends it off to the Vatican. And the Vatican's Congregation for the Causes of the Saints will then review your case. And if they agree with the findings of your local bishop that you led a life of what's called heroic virtue, you are at that point declared venerable. Here's the sixth. From your post in heaven, you now pray for a miracle. You, from your post in heaven, will pe petition God and pray that, that a miracle would be performed for someone who knew you, was connected to you, or has prayed to you. And this miracle preferably would be a physical healing or the curing of a disease. Here's the seventh. The Vatican then investigates the miraculous cure. And here's what I love about this is that it is investigated by non-Catholic experts. So it cannot be tainted or slanted. And so they bring in experts that are not of the Catholic faith and they investigate your miraculous cure. And it must qualify as verifiable, instantaneous, non-recurring, not attributable to any other cause and not attributable to any other saint. In other words, it cannot be discovered that more than one potential saint was prayed to for the same miracle. Here's the eighth. The Vatican then declares you as blessed. And they have a special beatification mass. It's normally presided over by the Pope himself. And the Catholic Church then declares you as blessed. And they formally proclaim that you are now in heaven. And at this point, you're given a feast day. And churches in your local diocese and schools can then be named after you. Here's step number nine, is from your post in heaven, you must pray for another miracle. And then once that happens, number 10, you are a saint. So that is the Catholic approach. 10 not super easy steps that can cost upwards of a million dollars. Or you can take the Apostle Paul's approach. One step, be in Christ. And so are you in Christ? If you are, you're a saint. And here's what I know. I know for some of you, now for me, this wasn't hard to accept. I was like, cool. I wish I had some business cards made. Walk around talking about, hey man, what's up? This is uh, just Saint Sean. This, you know, ain't no thing. No thing. I'm a pat patron saint of tennis shoes. That's me. You know, whatever. Just pray for people to have better kicks, you know. But I wish my kids would call me Saint Dad. That has never happened. Nobody's done it yet. For me, because I didn't have the baggage, this wasn't a difficult process for me. It wasn't a hard leap. But for some people who grew up as a part of a particular system, a particular church, it's very difficult for them to view themselves that way. And so because of that, unintentionally to that religious system, they have now become limited in their thinking. And when I say to you that Paul says you are a saint, suddenly your mind explodes. And you're like, bro, I can't be a saint. You don't know me, man. You don't know what I do. You don't know what I think. You don't know how long I think it. 
And I go, dang, oh man, we live our lives in self-pity, don't we? Like I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. We live in our past mistakes and our past regrets. And, and rather than what Pastor Ruben talked about, how Jesus looked at that woman and he said, go into peace. Some of y'all need to get out of mistakes and out of regrets and get into the peace that surpasses all understanding. But your identity isn't being in a sin, in being a sinner. The Bible doesn't speak about people who are in Christ as sinners ever, not once. Now, 300 times the Bible talks about people being sinners, but all 300 of those times, the people that it speaks of are not in Christ. They haven't exchanged their identity for the identity of Christ. It sees those who are in Christ positionally as saints. It sees people who are not positionally in Christ as sinners. And so if you are in Christ, you, you are not a filthy, wicked, vile sinner who's been forgiven. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new identity, a new biography. You have a new eternity. And yet some of you, you walk around and you say these words. And I used to say it when I was a new believer. You used to say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I Meaning you need to take them words out your mouth. That is not, that is not, that is not who you are. And some of you can't move on because your primary identity is in your sin rather than in your savior. You can't move on because of guilt and shame. And so you say things like, oh man, I just can't forgive myself. And it sounds cute and it sounds coy, but the problem is it's blasphemous because what you're saying is God can forgive me, but I can't. And that means that for you, there's a God above Jesus and that God is you. And so we live our lives under this self-condemnation. We condemn ourselves, even though God hasn't condemned us. You're, you're denying the words of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus or the words of the gospel of John chapter three, verse 17. If you've not read that, it's right after the big one that you see at all the football games, you know, where God loved the world so much. And it says, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, does he convict people? Yes. Does he condemn people? No. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is from God. Condemnation is from Satan. Conviction leads to life. Condemnation leads to death. Conviction ends in joy. Condemnation ends in sorrow. Conviction makes us want to change. Condemnation makes us believe we can never change. Conviction looks to Jesus. Condemnation looks past Jesus at ourselves. Conviction is a blessing. Condemnation is a burden. Conviction leads to a new identity in Christ, but condemnation leads to an old identity in sin. Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Are you in Christ? If you are, you're a saint. And it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Saints sin. Every one of the 10,000 saints in the cards they have, they all sinned. They all made mistakes, including Paul. And he talks about it extensively throughout the book of Romans. And then he summarizes it when he writes his letter to his Friend Timothy says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But he's not identifying with that because our identity isn't in our sin. It's in our Savior. When we come to Christ, he, he made us genuinely new, but he didn't make us completely new. Now, there's a process 
uh, called progressive sanctification. And in this concept of progressive sanctification, you are continually growing and changing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been saved 25 years. I still have struggles. I still have things that I wrestle with. But here's the thing. I don't wrestle with the same things I wrestled with 25 years ago. If you took the things that I wrestle with today and you stacked them up next to the things I wrestled with 25 years ago, you'd be like, dog, man, he's killing it. Because, because over the last 25 years, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I have progressively become less like me and more like him. And, and so before we received Jesus, we were in sin. But when we met Jesus, everything changed and we were now in Christ. We still mess up. We still make mistakes. We're still tempted to sin. But there's a big difference between temptation and sin. Even though Jesus never sinned, he was tempted to sin. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted. Jesus never sinned, but he had the ability to do so. He just never did. In fact, Hebrews chapter four says, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so like us, Jesus was tempted to sin, but unlike us, he defeated that temptation. And we see that play out in this beautiful story in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness so he could fast and pray for 40 days. And in that time, in those 40 days, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And when Satan tempted Jesus, he spoke directly to Jesus' identity. He says, if you are the son of God, because at the root of all temptation is a question of our identity. But Jesus ends the encounter with Satan by using an identity statement as well. He's, maybe you've never read it this way. He looks at the enemy and he says, you shall not put the Lord God to a test. Watch. He wasn't saying that they shouldn't put the Lord God to a test. He was telling Satan he shouldn't put the Lord God to a test. I, I picture it like, like Satan came and tried to tempt Jesus. Now, this is, this, this is, the, this is the where I come from version. Satan came trying to tempt Jesus, and Jesus is like, come on, man. You know, do you know, do you know who I am? I know you know. Does anybody else see it? He, you, remember when we, hold it, like, remember we used to be in heaven? Remember when you used to be in heaven and you used to be like the singer in heaven and you thought, and you had the trumpets come out of your mouth. And you thought, you, you thought people were going to follow you. You thought you were, you were going to win. Remember, remember when you were in heaven and I whipped your tail then? I wish you would, I wish you would ask me if you are the son of God. You ever have people... Test, like test you, te like you're saved now, but you can still take your earrings off. You know, like people, <laughs> you, you, you could still catch a cake. Like, the, like there's people who you're in line at Walmart and they, they step on your shoe or say something stupid to your kids. Like, like, like you don't know how to, you ever have people act like you don't know how to be a parent? <laughs> you'd be like, man, I'll kill you. Like, like what are you? <laughs> 
I feel like that, like that was Jesus in line at Walmart, Jesus. The devil said, if you are the son of God, and Jesus said, hold up a minute, let me. What you mean, don't. Do not put the Lord, don't, don't test me. Because the fact is, they both knew who Jesus was. And the enemy knows who you are too. The question is, do you? See, once you know who you are in Christ, you'll know what to do for Christ. But if you primarily identify as a sinner, then when you're tempted to sin, you'll automatically determine, well, I'm just a sinner, so I guess I might as well go on and sin. But that's not who you are. So stop when you're being tempted to sin, acting like you're just a dirty old sinner saved by grace. When you are tempted to sin, you need to say, uh-uh, play, I'm not a sinner. I'm a saint because your identity will naturally determine your activity. And so it comes back to this big thought, the big ask, are you a sinner or are you a saint? And not based upon your opinion of yourself. Biblically, being a saint isn't based on the opinion of man. It's not based on what your mama says. It's not based on what your second grade teacher says, what society says, what a church, any church says. Being a saint isn't based on the good work you do. It's based on the good work Jesus has already done for you in living, dying, and rising from the dead. So I know it's impossible for us to think of ourselves as saints. It doesn't feel like we have the authority, but you do have the authority. It's called the scriptures, which 60 times in the New Testament alone tells you, you are a saint. And so when writing to his friends in the city of Corinth, Paul said to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every other place will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Are you in Christ? Then why are you still identifying as a sinner? Because to continue to live your life identifying as a sinner, it minimizes the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It renders the cross ineffective. And so I'll ask you one last time, are you a sinner or are you a saint? Now, you may have come in here today and you are clearly a sinner, but I have good news for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you came in here as a sinner, but you can leave here as a saint. Would you close your eyes all across this place? Are you a sinner or are you a saint? That is the question that determines eternity. There's going to be a lot of people who do saintly things, good works, lots of wonderful stuff. And in the end, the Bible says Jesus is going to have to look at them and say, depart from me for I never knew you. You are a worker of iniquity. And there are going to be plenty of people who did nothing but dirt and they're going to make it to heaven because in the 11th hour, they cried out and said, Jesus, I am a sinner, but make me a saint. You know, the Bible says that no day is promised, that today could be your last. And I wonder if you walked in here, what if you got in your car, you drove home, you got back on this 41 and you got hit by a semi, would you go to heaven or hell? If you're a sinner, you're going to hell. But if you're a saint, do not pass go, immediately go to heaven. If you want that blessed assurance the Bible promises of being a saint, we have the opportunity for you to do that today. It's actually, it's a pretty simple process. The Bible says all you have to do is confess and profess. Confess that you're a sinner and profess that Jesus can change that. And so today we're going to give you the opportunity to do both things, to confess and profess. And here's how. In just a moment with nobody looking around, I'm going to ask for people to do two things. The first is that in a moment I'm going to ask for people who would say, Sean, I am a sinner 
to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down. That is your opportunity to confess. After that, I'm gonna ask for everyone in this place to pray a prayer after me. And if you raise your hand and you repeat the prayer and you meet it in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved, a saint. So if you're here today and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I want to before I leave with nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand and make eye contact with me? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone in here to say these words after me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, congratulations, you just became a saint. You just punched your ticket to heaven, and we would like the opportunity to help you in that journey because what happens now is so often people come under attack. And so we want the opportunity to help you, to hold you up. And so if you just take the card that's in the seat back in front of you, tear off the bottom part, fill it out, whatever information you're comfortable with us have, check the box that's highlighted in yellow that says I'm choosing to follow Jesus. You can put it in the black buckets when they come around at the end, or you can take it out to the Welcome Center. Either way, we just want the chance to get to know you. Maybe you don't want to touch the paper, so you can take your phone, and like Pastor Dallas said, you can scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you or the one that's up on the screen, and we'll get your information. We just want the opportunity to connect with you. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes one more time before Pastor Becky comes around. I wonder if you're hearing you say, Sean, I'm, I'm saved. Um, but I've been operating in an old faulty identity. I've been acting like I'm still a sinner. If that's you, I'd love the opportunity to pray for you. If you're still living in that old identity and you wanna lay it down today, would you just raise your hand so that I could pray for you? Yep, man, so many people. God, for so many of my friends in this place today, I pray blessings, I pray that you touch their hearts and their minds. God, today you would change their identity, adjust it today. We love you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.